everyone is looking at what's right in front of us. So everyone is looking at Brexit, everyone is looking at trade negotiations, what is Trump doing, what is what is happening with the global slowdown, and those are all really, really important things, and we have an opinion on all of those things too. But that's extremely hard to generate alpha in that space. You're about to hear my conversation with Constantine Boomer. We discuss why managing passive products has made him a better active manager, his non-consensus bullish view on Europe, his ongoing research on the looming pension crisis, and we also got his recommendations on books, podcasts, and the best German food in Toronto. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Bites and Insights, the podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. I'm excited to be here today with Constantine Bomer. Constantine is the lead portfolio manager of the McKenzie Global Tactical Bond Fund, the uh, McKenzie Global Bond ETF. He is also leads the quantitative efforts within our fixed income team. That team manages just over $42 billion. Constantine, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me here. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with where you grew up. Sure. So I uh, grew up in uh, Berlin, in Germany. So I'm a German national. I spent my first 18 years in Berlin going to the various schools. And then I think I uh, got a little bit enough of the city and decided to to mix things up a little bit. And, and as it is in Germany at that time, you had to pick and choose between uh, the army or civil service. So oh. I picked the picked the army because it's a little bit shorter, so I wanted to save a little bit of time and also wanted to explore something new. So I left Berlin, went to went to the army, which was in a different part of Germany, did my uh, required training and then quickly went back to Berlin to become uh, an assistant to the chief accountant. So probably back then there was already some uh, affinity to finance and to, to managing numbers. And after doing that for nine months, I decided to study. And my uh, my university of choice was in England. So here again, I wanted to explore something else and do something a little bit different uh, relative to all my, my friends in Berlin and wanted to, to leave the country. So I, uh, together with my cousin, I uh, moved to England and uh, to a university called University of Hertfordshire, which is in North London studied European business and Spanish at that university for three years. And that's probably all that leads me up to age 22. And I did a few internships during that time. Probably the most important one was uh, with Lazard, Lazard Asset Management in Frankfurt, which is then also my first job. So basically after the internship, uh, they offered me a job to come back full time which made my final year a lot nicer and easier and more enjoyable because I already had plans than uh, what to do after my uh, university degree. Right. Um, so started in the army. They immediately pegged you for an accountant or someone in finance, yeah. and you've carried that through uh, to this very day. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's definitely nicer to be in a in an office uh, uh, which is heated. Sure. And <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. So uh, you uh, left to London, back to Frankfurt. Um, and just uh, as you were going through that period, sort of your foundational uh, period on sort of thinking about investments, finance, markets, that type of thing, do you think now that you work in North America that that German experience leads to diversity of thought or you have different uh, inputs into the way you're thinking based on the German language speakers that are thinking about these things? Yeah. Sure, probably a little bit, yeah. So I think for me, it was the first internship was a defining one because it was split half-half between uh, fixed income and equities. Okay. And usually people here would say, well, obviously you would gravitate towards equities because that's cooler, that's more exciting, it's more volatile, it's where all the action is. But in uh, Germany, at uh, Lazard, it was the action was on the fixed income team. Okay. And that is... Because fixed income plays a much larger role in Germany and in Europe in general. It is where the majority of assets are. It is where pension funds put have to allocate the majority of their assets so that it is a lot more action in the fixed income space. And in terms of size, it was not even comparable. It was mm -hmm. a multiple, multiple times more AUM assets under management on the fixed income side relative to equities. So that already steered me to fixed income. And I was obviously much more interested then in, in, in fixed income. And that probably guided me into my way of thinking and it being such an important role everyone in uh, in Europe and in Germany knows where interest rates are everyone knows where the bund future trades everyone knows where and how expensive uh, debt is you mentioned also the the language aspect of it uh, I always find it surprising and uh, how North Americans treat debt, for example. Mm -hmm. And my parents always ta taught me basically never to go into debt. If you don't have the money, then uh, tough luck. You just need to save a little bit more until you have it, and then you can buy whatever you're intending to purchase. And that probably comes from the, the word for debt, and that is in, in German the literal translation for that is guilt. So yeah. that's something where you don't really want to have any debt because that means that you're doing something which is not right. That right. You should be guilty. You should feel guilty for, for, having, for having debt. And I think that plays through what we've seen in the European crisis, how we mm. see Germany behaving right now with having a budget surplus, having seen their debt-to-GDP levels drop to 60%, being in a really good shape, financially, but at the same time, we see the economy slipping, but there's no inclination of moving away from what they call the black zero, which is having a, a balanced budget. Right. And I think that's, so my thinking about that is I see, I understand what's going on in Europe, and it makes a lot of sense from their viewpoint, but sure. at the same time, now being in North America since, since uh, 2009, I see the benefits also of Sometimes it does make sense to to invest and in, to go into debt if it right. is in uh, some productive capacity. And I think that's really the critical point now for Europe where they have to overcome those long-held beliefs and need to adopt a little bit more of the North American way of thinking in and spend a little bit more 
invest a little bit more in the crumbling infrastructure and right. probably lay out the path for future growth in Europe, which well, doesn't work without government uh, as it is right now. Right. We'll come back to sort of the macro uh, view later in the conversation. I want to uh, narrow in, though. You mentioned you came to North America 2009. Um, the world was effectively on fire. It felt like at least financial markets were in 2009. Yeah. Um, what prompted your move from Frankfurt to, to North America? Uh, and what was the environment like when you arrived? Yeah. So I uh, started working in uh, at Lazard in Frankfurt in uh, 2004, so, and I worked there un up until 2009. And uh, I was part of the portfolio management team, so that was European fixed income. My sector responsibility there was uh, inflation-linked bonds, and I also uh, uh, was able to, to get a few institutional clients mm -hmm. over the time and over the course of my career in, in Frankfurt. But I would do... And I think that's uh, part of my career and part of my my progression in life was always that I always want to see what else is out there, what is more interesting, how can I keep my learning curve steep, how can I get uh, new inputs and new insights. And even though everything worked really fine and really well at Lazard Frankfurt, I was chatting with my boss back then to see what other opportunities and options are available within Lazard and the global fixed income team, which is, I would say, one step up from European fixed income, which is very narrow, but it was much larger in size. But just the complexity of global fixed income fascinated me. So we were dis discussing, debating the opportunity of joining the global fixed income team in New York, which was led by Yvette Clevan and still is. And you know what, over over the years and over time, we came to agreements and I liked the team over there and the company liked the idea of bringing me over to New York. And so the negotiation began in uh, early 2008 and with everything, all the aspects of it, it uh, it actually came only to the conclusion in beginning beginning of 2009. Okay. So that was a very different environment to when we started the discussion, and the global financial crisis is to blame for that. But nonetheless, everything went ahead, and I started working at the New York office, which is at 30 Rock in, uh, in Manhattan. I started on March 10th, which is, number one, my wedding anniversary. Yeah, wow. And number two, it was the first day that the stock market rose after the close, after the lowest close of the great financial crisis. So it was a very awkward feeling walking into the office saying, hi, I'm the new guy from, from Germany. We're in a crisis and here I am. So It sounds like you fixed it though, because that was the bottom. And since then we've been on a, a right. bull run. So thank that's you right. for that. Yes, I was worried when I came here that there was, uh, so I, I, I left Lazard in 2013. So I was right. worried for a little bit if, if w w when I change my jobs again, that the market Mark will go the other way. But uh, apparently it didn't. So Locked out I, I don't think it's it's anything tied to me. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and what motivated uh, the move from New York to Toronto uh, to join McKenzie? Yes. So I honestly I had uh, not heard of McKenzie Investments while I was in uh, in New York. Having said that, I got to know them pretty well. So it was uh, through Headhunter, Steve, and so Steve is the head of the fixed income team. 
and uh, Tony, the chief investment officer, they through headhunters they were looking for a global fixed income manager, and uh, somehow it also reached me. And I started the conversation with Steve, and just it became a very natural conversation. Just what what does McKenzie want? Who are they? What is the the long term intention of the company? And everything sounded and seemed very very interesting to me. And I think the biggest part for me in that conversation was, number one, the trust that I got from the leadership at uh, McKenzie, but secondly, also the opportunity that they provided me. And while I was at Lazard in New York, we did uh, exceptionally well, great performance, and we raised lots of money over the time, the four and a half years, I think we tripled our assets under management in that group. So everything was also going really well in that group, but I developed over the time also an affinity, and I already had that in uh, during the Frankfurt Times, but it continuously developed during the New York Times for developing and including quantitative models. Okay. And I pushed for those models also to be more and more included into the into the investment process, but there was maybe a little bit of a hesitation of including too much of it because there's the process worked, the performance was great, sure. so why do you need to change something that works really well? And my argument for that was, sure, it worked well in the past, but we need to constantly adapt to the new environment and new situations, so let's introduce more and more of those quant models. But there was some hesitation, so when the opportunity with McKenzie came around, that was probably my my first talking point with Steve and the team, this is what I would like to do. So I would like to have a significant share of quant models as part of the strategy because I think that is absolutely required to have strong risk-adjusted performance going forward. And at the same time, of course, utilize a lot of the things that I learned uh, throughout my time and also, of course, utilize the team that is here at McKenzie in the fixed income space. Great. Uh, I look forward to diving into more details on your actively managed strategies uh, shortly. Uh, first, I want to pause. Um, you do manage all of our uh, passive fixed income ETFs. That sounds like a bit of an oxymoronic statement to manage passive products, but tell me what you do with those. Yeah. So when uh, we launch passives, passives, I, w I would say the common perception of that when I also speak to my friends and family is like, yeah, that's super easy. It's no sure. big deal. I mean, it's passive. How hard can it be? But it is actually, it is quite a bit of work, but it's a different kind of work. So I would say the work that we do for our active mandates is, yes, there's some, there's definitely a process to it, but it is also creative. You need to think about a problem differently than the market, differently than competitors in order to gain an edge. And it is not a mechanical way of looking at an, uh, a specific situation. So it is. it requires a lot of deep thinking versus for passive mandates is like a manufacturing process. So it is all about, you know what, this is, there's a way to do it perfect. Right. And we just have to get to the point where everything is almost automatic, that it is really the push of a button will generate the trades, the push of a button will realign the portfolios so that it perfectly matches the index. 
So there is a lot of work behind the scenes that needs to be put in place in order to manage passive mandates. And I, the little bit of um, discretionary uh, decision making in that passive process is are the trade-offs that we need to make because it's there's a trade-off, a very clear trade-off for all of our passive mandates, and that those are passive ETFs between matching exactly 100% what the index is doing and not incurring too many costs doing so. Right. And that is a trade-off. We can match everything that the index does 100%, but what that does is it increases the trading costs for the funds. So that's and and that's something, the trading costs you will never get back. Of course. The tracking error, if you are willing to have a little bit of tracking error, that sometimes goes for you, sometimes it goes against you, but over time there's no way to to say that this is a positive or a negative thing. Sure. It is just that you have a little bit of tracking versus your index. Our opinion on the team is that it is okay to have a small amount of tracking error if it significantly reduces the transaction costs because transaction costs are paid and you will never get those back. So that is a little bit of that uh, ambiguity that we need to decide as portfolio managers. But yeah, it is it is fun. We're launching another ETF um, right now and uh, that is for sure also quite some work to get all the ducks lined up for that. I'm sure. It yeah. sounds like your quantitative background really helps out uh, managing these products uh, along with the fundamental insight that you mentioned. So, Yeah, and I think maybe one point to add, there's also a tremendous amount of insight that we can gain from understanding how passive mandates are managed. And some of our quant models that we use for alpha generation are at least influenced by our knowledge that we've gained from passive mandates. And... Uh, I mean, one example for that is we know exactly how passive mandates are managed and we know at which day uh, each ETF or regular passive mandate needs to rebalance their trades. We know also when the index is publishing what changes need to be made. Right. And that is an insight that you can exploit and that could be some bonds will be included in an index, right. other bonds will be dropped off an index, and we know that there is a mechanical buyer or seller of those securities a few days after that information is published. And the most uh, dominant aspect of it is on the duration management side where a passive mandate always needs to, that's probably one of the more critical aspects for fixed income passive uh, funds is you need to match as a, as a bare minimum, you need to match the exact duration of the index. And if that index has a duration extension, that just means that there is systematic demand of duration over the last few days of the month for index buyers. Interesting. So managing passive has made you a better active manager, it sounds like, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think so. And at the same time, it also helps our operational processes. Of course. Because that is just such a standardized, standardized way of transmitting trades that we use some of the technologies that we developed for passive ETFs, and they're mm. now moving over also in the active space. So you manage two active 
products uh, where you're the lead manager. And as I said, you're the input on, on uh, the entire book of business uh, of fixed income that we have. Um, within your global fixed income products, what is what are the objectives of the fund and how do you approach it? Yeah. So the for the global mandate, so we actually have a we have a few different kinds of global mandates, but in general they all follow the same logic, and that is we can generate alpha from a multitude of different areas, and those areas are we have a very strong credit team, so we will, and we have in the past generated a substantial amount of alpha by utilizing our credit research process. And that is in the leveraged loan space, in the high-yield space, mm-hmm. or also in the investment-grade space, where we have a long history of excellent performance, also in various different strategies. And that is a core component also of the global strategy. So I will not pick and choose individual loans. It is Movan Mokbel who runs our loan strategy. He will pick the loans that he thinks suitable, he and his team. They will pick the loans that are suitable for also the global mandates. It is basically me who will decide should it be 5%, should it be 10%, what is the the asset mix, what is the strategic allocation or tactical also allocation to leverage loans. Same applies for high yield. Dan Cooper is here, uh, the man in charge, and for investment grade as well. So there is is, uh, a lot of good things that we do in the credit process. So that is one component. Another component, as I mentioned earlier, are the quant models. Mm -hmm. And here we have a variety of quant models which are not explaining the world. There's not one quant model which can tell us exactly how to invest and when to shift where in all the different asset classes. It is we we have models for each major decision. So we have a quant model which helps us make a decision on our duration management. We have a quant model which helps us make a decision on which countries to overweight, which countries to underweight. We have a couple of different quant models which will help us with our currency management and also a model which helps us with our sector rotation between the different asset classes. So each one is a little bit different and they don't all are, it's it's not the same model just uh, with a different input factor or a different, different asset class to choose from. They're different models which are working well for that specific segment or the specific problem that we're trying to find a solution for. So we have those models and they all should generate a little bit of alpha, each model individually. They all have great historical performance, back testing is great, also since we have them live, they're doing really well. But here again, we are trying to see that not one individual idea, not one individual model has too much of an impact on the fund. So it is it is all about also risk management and right. how much, how do we size those models? How do we size individual credit ideas? And that is something where we say a model is supposed to be contributing 20, 30 basis points of performance to the fund on an annual basis. But at the same time, if it for some reason doesn't do well, because things might be very, very different in the future. Sure. We also don't want it to ruin the fund and have too much of a negative contribution. So one part is security selection. Another part are the quant models. And the third part is our macro research and our expression of how we think about the world, what are our core themes, what are the the longer-term trends, but also short-term market dislocations that, that we want to take advantage of. And that is 
a core component of how we strive to generate positive risk-adjusted performance for our clients through our global mandates. And the objective for the global mandates that we have is to have strong risk-adjusted performance. So it is not, we're not trying to hit the ball out of the park every month, quarter, or year, but what we're striving to do is have really strong risk-adjusted performance, so sharp ratio, information ratio, those would be the indicators that are more relevant for this fund, and to determine if the fund is actually doing well and is doing what it's supposed to do, or if it's not. Right. And the goalpost for us is within the global category, we want to have a sharp ratio, which is in the top quartile, high second quartile, and that's right. generally how we have uh, performed in the in the past five years. Great. Um, I want to dig a little bit uh, more deeply into the global macro. I know that recently you've uh, released two parts of a three-part uh, series called the Looming Pension Crisis. Yep. Um, that's more of a uh, long-term, I'd say, or longer-term uh, global macro theme. I'd love for you to take us through uh, what you talk, what you spoke about in those papers, uh, why it's important, and then maybe at the end, tie it into how you're thinking about that uh, within the portfolio today, and what do you actually do within the portfolio to take those thoughts uh, and express them? Yeah, uh, great, thanks, Matt. So I will maybe answer one question that you didn't ask: great. why we do those longer-term projects, and I think that w w an important consideration here is, is that everyone is looking at what's right in front of us. So everyone is looking at Brexit, everyone is looking at trade negotiations, what is Trump doing, what is what is happening with the global slowdown, and those are all really, really important things, and we have an opinion on all of those things too, but that's extremely hard to generate alpha in that space because Everyone is looking at it. Okay. The smartest, best, most sophisticated people with the best connections are all in that space. And we belong to those to those people, but it is hyper, hyper competitive. And the reason for it being so competitive is that the investors in general are demanding good numbers on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis on a yearly basis if it is that's a stretch already but if your investment horizon is so short you put a lot more emphasis on those shorter term uh, aspects what we want to achieve is we want to have an opinion on those and we generally do and we can chat about those uh, in this podcast but we also want to take another step and say well what are the things that are relevant and that could be could become center stage in a year, in two years, in five years. Because oftentimes you can, that is a much less competitive space, so okay. there is a much greater chance of generating alpha. And at the same time, it is also a lot more interesting. And, uh, and it, it requires thinking because it is not pre-written by somebody else and we're not influenced by what somebody else is writing. It is really just us thinking about a big problem. And you can put on trades which are now, you can put on trades for stuff that you see in two, three, four, five years time, you can put on those trades at almost no cost because nobody is pricing it in, oh, nobody is looking at it. So you can make trades which are basically free 
And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, then you didn't lose anything. Right. So one of those uh, bigger things that we thought about recently is indeed the the looming pension crisis. And uh, yes, we've uh, published two papers. A third one is actually already completely written. Okay. Oh, the model is completely built, but those uh, it takes time to clean up my bad English. <laughs> okay. So. Um, I think it will be released probably within the next few weeks. Okay, great. And the basic logic for it is that we are in an area where public uh, welfare was a dominant theme and it was developed multiple decades ago and it was a great invention that helped shape the world that we have right now because it basically reduced the need for individuals to save a lot for individuals to worry a lot about their future but as the economy and as societies have developed over the last few decades that system that welfare system that was in, put in place uh, aggressively after after world war 2 that system that has been put in place has not really adapted to the new environment. And whenever you have something where you have reality and perception moving in different directions, mm -hmm. that creates a problem. And in the pension system, and especially in the public pension system, you still have a lot of um, beliefs and a lot of assumptions that are embedded in those calculations to make the math work at the end of the day, which are just not compatible with reality right now. And whenever you have that disconnect, that creates tension, and that tension creates opportunity. And that is something that I see as an opportunity for us to position and to also educate people. But at the same time, it is a massive risk that I see for the global world uh, going into the future. And the the, our work that we've done so far, so the first paper that we wrote is basically just outlining what we see and what the key challenges are. Right. The second paper is looking at the world and saying, let's look at all the different countries around the globe and say which countries are well-prepared, which countries are ill-prepared. And the model that we built here is, uh, I think, something that nobody has ever done. And it it ranks the countries and it has a specific or it has a multitude of different indicators which we use to judge how solid and safe a pension system is. And the way that we can use that information and translate it into actionable trade ideas is that we can see which countries are well prepared, which countries are ill prepared, but the market is not really looking at this right now. So right. you can go, let's say, long Netherlands and short Austria and because Netherlands is extremely well prepared, Austria is ill prepared, but they both trade at roughly the same level. Right. So it is an easy trade because nobody is looking at that to be a driving force of current bond prices. And in general, there are also macro, macro considerations, which are um, any country with uh, in Europe, you can see that there will be more tensions in the future because you have, as I mentioned, some countries which are well prepared, some countries which are ill prepared, but you only have one central bank to make decisions for the combined zone. So 
how will they react to one country saying we don't need any support, we're perfectly in great shape, and right. the other one is saying we need help with uh, managing our our future obligations. So there, you can see that there will be more tensions down the road. So that's that's an important model that we build. Another model that we just finished is on uh, U.S. states, and the reason why we picked. Only one market where we drilled in deep is because, number one, the U.S. has a leading role as a global superpower, sure. most dominant economic force. It, the Federal Reserve is still the most important central bank in the world. Because it is so dominant and so important, it also justifies spending a little bit extra time of analyzing what's happening in, in the U.S. specifically. And there's great data and uh, lots of information around there. And here we looked at all the different states in the U.S., and again, rank them based on their preparedness hmm. um, and their ability to withstand pressure versus the opposite, which is, let's say, more the Illinois, New Jersey area, which are already severely challenged. But it is really interesting to see which states are doing the right things and which are not. And in the U.S. in particular, there is a like the biggest problem that we see and why we looked so closely at the U.S. are the assumptions that are embedded in all those calculations. And we just ripped those assumptions apart okay. and said, look, it is not feasible to think that you can generate 7.5% returns every single year, sure. which is part of their assumptions and their models. It doesn't make sense. How about we rip that calculation apart and just say, let's make it 5 well, let's make it four and a half. Let's see how that changes the trajectory of, of solvency for those plans. And at the same time, discount rates is another assum major assumption in all of those calculations where they're saying that $100 in 20 years' time, if you have $25 now, it is basically you're fully funded okay. if you have a $100 obligation because sure. the discount rate is so absurdly large that it is just making the problem so much smaller on paper. In reality, the problem is large, but on paper, when you have those assumptions, it is a small problem. So a couple of follow-ups on that. First, I'm Canadian, so how did Canada make out in this? Yeah, pretty okay. Oh, good. Pretty okay. It could be better, but it's pretty okay. It's in the uh, second quartile. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so you, you've mentioned... Um, disparate uh, both states and countries uh, when we were talking about Europe. Uh, does this make you more bearish on the the Eurozone in general? Um, I think it's a, it's a fair point. I think that is one major challenge that Europe has. And what we do with all of that research, it's not an imminent threat. It is a threat down the road. Okay. So it doesn't make me bearish Europe now, which is, everyone is bearish Europe now, but sure. that's not the, the reason uh, for me to be bearish. I think there is, that is one path that makes me worrisome about, uh, about Europe, but there are also many other paths which are actually making me fairly bullish on Europe. Really? And yeah, so I think it always, when, when there's groupthink, you it argues to just take a step back and think, is there a different way to think about that same situation? Because if everyone is negative about something, it, it might be the case that you should be negative, but what it should tell you, wait a minute, 
let's try really hard to think about any alternative view because if everyone is thinking that way, it probably is already embedded in the price. So, yeah, I can give you... Take me through the bull case for Europe. Like, I, I'll set the stage. We have, uh, if we're looking at short term, and we're stealing from the next segment a little bit, but if we're looking at short term, we have Brexit coming up. You have uh, what appears to be some fragility in uh, the euro, um, in the European bloc, I'd say. I mean, yeah. that's maybe come down a little bit since the European crisis, but certainly there was a peak there. Yeah. Um, if I look around the globe, you have great growth rates in Asia, uh, moderate growth rates in North America, poor growth rates in Europe. So what what is the bull case? Yes, so I think there's no real bull case right in front of us. Okay. There, but there are different ways of how we can get out of that miserable sentiment that everyone has around Europe. I think the most, the mo we can go by what is reasonable to expect in terms of time. So reasonable to expect in terms of time could be that there is an increasing chatter all throughout Europe on increased fiscal spending. And let's say I'm not the biggest fan of believing that governments can fix every problem and can just spend money and the problem will go away. I'm also not a real believer that socialism is the the path of for the great, greatest success, but I do think that the government plays a role in steering and pushing into the right direction. So it could okay. be a temporary push into a specific area, which will then create a positive feedback loop. And it is often that the government is required to make that initial push into that direction. And a positive feedback loop is that it just one uh, one impact leads to the next impact, and that right. re reinforces the initial impact, and then it creates a a cycle which is beneficial for the economy. So I think that's the role of the the government in terms of their fiscal spending. I mean, they have multiple roles. One is also to protect the the needed and to have some kind of basic, or at least in my opinion, a, a basic basic services and sure. basic protection for, for the population. But another one is more on the opportunistic side is to push the market into a certain direction. I think that's the key challenge for Europe now is are the governments able and willing to push into that right direction? And for me, the biggest one is do they recognize that, that's, that they have to do that right now? I'm almost 100% sure that they should do it, that okay. that's the way to go. And the the push that they need to make is on on smart green or on energy, mm -hmm. on on pushing Europe into the direction of, of, let's say, infrastructure, climate change, that direction of modernizing Europe and become a little bit more of a, or to become the leading area of of smart green the smart green revolution so fiscal spending would in this case it would be fiscal spending which would prompt an investment in smart green technology which would begin the feedback loop that would eventually yeah. uh, lead to the, the bullish case for Europe yeah is that fair yeah that, that is fair I think we are actually if you do a Google search on fiscal spending you will see that it is actually picking up in in Europe, so there's negative an, interest rates help that, I'm sure. <laughs> they should, yeah. Right. 
And as a, I read uh, German newspapers constantly, and it is part of the conversation. But okay. there is a massive hesitation of taking that step, of dipping or of borrowing money in order to fund those expenses. And what I'm really worried about is that the current governments, and that's not only Germany, but it can also be other countries in Europe, that they will wait for too long and only make the necessary step one and when the next crisis happens. I see. Because that's typically how Europe operates. It is, you have all those great plans already laid out way before a crisis erupts, but it's really only when the crisis erupts that you can get everyone to agree that that is the right path to take. So I'm maybe hopefully optimistic that they will this time make that decision prior to right. a crisis erupting. And you can maybe argue that the underperformance of Europe and the horrific PMIs and mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing sector in Europe, that that is, could be good enough for, for Europe to come together and come up with a plan of more fiscal spending. But yes, so that's, I think that should be the way. Germany had a, a fiscal plan or a, a green plan that they just put forward, but it is seems way too unambitious. It is way too small. It is, again, it is budget neutral, which is not what is required. It, what is required is to, to actually use those negative interest rates that you just mentioned and spend money, because that is the time. It is actually, I would say, fiscally irresponsible to not borrow at negative rates, because if you have any kind of positive ROI on that investment, you're, you're good. Right. right. You can borrow 10-year German bonds at minus 40 basis points. Thanks for those insights, uh, Constantine. We'll turn to the bite segment of the podcast where we talk about the current market environment. So it is October 23rd, uh, 2019. Uh, we've already sort of talked a, a little bit of macro. We'll continue the discussion, maybe focusing a little bit more on shorter term uh, trends. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to start, I know in, in uh, your portfolios, you have a fairly substantial position in inflation-linked bonds. Yeah. Um, Take me through your expectations for inflation over the short term and, and why you've put that position in. Yep, um, sure. So we put on that position throughout the year. So it's not a, we love it so much we put 20% in in one sure. go, but it is more of a structural theme that we have that inflation is underpriced. So we're not expecting inflation to go rampant the other way and we're in the next area of hyperinflation. That's not the intention of that trade. But what we're saying is that this uh, stagflationary or the, the, the scenario of, sorry, of, uh, of low inflation and having meager growth, that that scenario will not persist for all too long. There's probably just uh, two paths uh, for us. I mean, one is that we will dip into a, a crisis. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's obviously one path that the markets can take. Um, I don't think really that that's where we will go, but yes, we are in the late stage of an expansion. The last crisis was in 2008, 2009. Sure. So it is a, a time-wise, it is a, long period behind us, but in terms of actual growth and actually what, how the economy has grown and what are the imbalances that are observable in the economies, there are not many imbalances that I see. There are also 
growth hasn't skyrocketed and it is time for that to come down. There are not so many things that are looking off that requires us to have a, a crisis, a corrective crisis. Um, so there is, for sure, there is a path and that path can become self-fulfilling by politics going the wrong way if the trade war or, or trade spat increases, if we have more countries joining, if the manufacturing malaise is continuing, if governments are not stepping in and doing fiscal, if central banks are stopping with their, their, their easing. So there are a lot of paths which can lead us the, the wrong way. But there are also the alternative path. And I think the, what we see right now is more evidence that we are probably in a prolonging of the cycle. And okay. for me, it is always the most worrying parts of global macro are when the central bank is thinking one thing and the market is thinking something else. So if they are looking in two different directions, bad things can happen in market. And I think that's what we had last year sure. where the Federal Reserve, again, most important central bank in the world, was telling us that everything is fine and that they will continue hiking rates and that quantitative tightening is on autopilot. So they were looking in one direction and the market is already or was already seeing the signs of housing slowing in the US, car sales coming down, all the interest rates, sensitive sectors underperforming and the market was going in a different direction. And if they if the two forces are going in different direction, then the market will, in terms of risky assets, will react quite aggressively. What we have now is that the, the central banks have basically swung all the way over to the market, recognizing that there is a need for more stimulus, more help. Whether that's ultimately going to be the solution, I doubt it, but it's a temporary solution and a temporary help for the markets that at least the central banks are aligned with the market view. And how that ties back into our position with inflation-linked bonds mm -hmm. is that we have central banks who are cutting rates aggressively now. We also have central banks which are increasing liquidity in the market. So we are back to increasing the balance sheets of the various central banks. And we also have central banks who are discussing changing, changing their their uh, their policy and that is in the case of the Federal Reserve we see this increasing conversation uh, about average inflation targeting and the bottom line for us with that discussion is that there is a willingness of the Fed to allow for much higher inflation because that much higher inflation if it were to be achieved in the future is just a compensation for all the years where the market has undershot where the Federal Reserve had their target. So it's basically you accumulate all your undershooting inflation sure. and then you can overshoot on the other side. And that just tells us that if, and that's of course, and if, if inflation goes higher, the Fed will not put on put their foot on the brake right away. So right. they will let inflation run a little bit hotter, a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. And what that does to inflation-linked bonds and to markets and to perception of inflation, it should increase those expectations that inflation can be higher. Right. And it can be higher for longer. And that is something that we are 
betting on, and mm -hmm. that is a, a fairly significant position, as you said, in our mandates. There are also other aspects of it, and one is that core inflation in the U.S. is actually at 2.4%. It's the highest in 10 years. Okay. Core inflation is more important to us than headline inflation. Headline inflation is always heavily influenced by energy prices and food prices. Core is a little bit more stable. There are some like intricacies about that, which uh, um, which we generally don't like that much, but in, it's a pretty good gauge of where inflation is. Then wage inflation has picked up quite a bit. So it is around about 3% uh, now. That has come up from 2% and under 2% from a few years ago. And again, we're in the, maybe not at the absolute highs of the last 10 years, but definitely in the highest 10%. And that is something that is an important aspect, especially when uh, unemployment rates have dropped as far as they have. Will that translate to higher wages? And there seems to be some evidence that this is picking up and that wages are actually going up in the United States. So our expression is primarily geared towards the U.S., so the, our inflationary bond position is in the U.S. Okay. We have, so it is in, it is in U.S. tips, and here the, the view is that implied break-evens, so implied inflation is just too low relative to where we see it to be justified. Makes sense. Uh, maybe uh, going to, uh, across the globe, so we've talked a lot about uh, North America, we've talked a lot about Europe, uh, emerging markets, you invest in emerging market debt. Um, what's your view on emerging markets right now? And uh, and tell us uh, about that investment and, and the bullish case for it, I guess. Yeah. So for emerging markets, there's always a big risk that whatever country you pick will come up on the front page of the newspaper. Sure. And right, right now it is Chile is mm -hmm. on the top of the newspaper that is uh, that was in the emerging market world always a poster child of uh, how an emerging market can develop and become developed market and become financially extremely sound, but uh, they're still on the front page again. And before that, we had Argentina, we had Turkey. There's always the risk that something is going wrong. But at the same time, um, yields are very attractive in that space. Right. I think in the day and age of negative interest rates uh, across the globe, primarily in Europe, but low interest rates across the world, it is just natural for investors to look at wherever there is yield. And yes, that is yield hunting and yield grabbing, and there are problems with that behavior. But nonetheless, it is understandable that people, pension manager, fund managers, investors like us will look for something with a positive yield. Right. Because it is, we need to deliver positive returns. We need to have uh, performance. And that is something that will drive investors and will continue to drive investors into yieldy assets. And those are in emerging markets. Those are in high yield securities. Those are in leveraged loans. So there is a continuous demand for those. And of course, it has to fit with the macro picture. And that macro picture, as I described earlier, in our opinion, is not horrible. It is challenged. It right. is challenged. And we need to have some protection in, in place. And we also have that protection in, in the funds that we manage. But it doesn't look horrible, in our opinion. And one specific 
uh, argument for us why we have a generally uh, bullish opinion on emerging markets. It's not raging bull, but it is uh, a moderate bullish view on emerging markets is that it usually comes down to two prices, probably or maybe three. It is for emerging market, everyone and everything depends on the US dollar. Right. If the US dollar is strengthening, it becomes a problem for emerging markets. It is not necessarily the 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 level of the U.S. dollar. It is the speed of the appreciation of the dollar. And here we've seen basically a stable U.S. dollar over the last year. Okay. Against some currencies, of course, it has strengthened. Against others, it has weakened. But it is broadly at the same level that we had last year. And what that tells us, there's definitely no acceleration of U.S. dollar strength. U.S. dollar weakness would be great for emerging markets. Stability is good for okay. emerging markets. The other important price point are, U- are U.S. Treasuries, where the U.S. Treasuries trade. And here, last year, we had the rise in, uh, in U.S. Treasuries, and that created some problems for emerging markets because a lot of emerging markets are funding themselves in the U.S. dollars and in the U.S. yield market, and that is that cost of funding themselves went up with U.S. Treasuries going higher. It's also that the opportunity of just buying a U.S. Treasury becomes so much more attractive if the yields in the U.S. are high relative to emerging markets. So why would I buy emerging markets yielding 3% if I can buy U.S. Treasuries at 4? Right. Right. So there's... So that aspect, and here, as we probably all know, U.S. Treasury yields have come down crashing since last year. So that is a positive uh, aspect for for emerging markets. The third price that I mentioned is always the is oil price. Mm-hmm. And here, some countries, some emerging markets are benefiting from it. Others are hurt by it. So benefiting, of course, would be all the Middle Eastern, also Colombia, Venezuela, or uh, some other markets, Russia, which are benefiting from a stronger oil price. Others, such as India, would be suffering. But where we are right now is probably okay for almost everyone. It is a good spot not to hurt the countries which are vulnerable to higher prices and not to hurt the countries which are vulnerable to lower oil prices. So it is somewhat of a sweet spot for emerging markets to not create problems. I will turn to the final segment of the podcast where I get uh, recommendations from you. So let's start off with uh, some of your favorite books. All right. So I do like reading books. I probably read maybe one or two a month. Um, so the favorite, I'll say a few favorites. Sure. Yeah. So I do like, uh, but I think that's some mainstream and then some maybe one other which is not. So the... I do like all the Juval Hariri books. Oh, they're so wonderful. I, they're wonderful. I also like... Just, just throw out the title. So this is the Sapiens. Sapiens, Homo Deus, and then I think it was 21 questions for the 21st century or right. something like that. I think by if I had to rank them, it is exactly that ranking. So okay. Sapiens first, Homo Deus second, and then the last one is a little bit maybe writing on the success of the previous books. He just wanted to release the third one. But I think there's something interesting to take out of each one of them. Mm -hmm. Another, so I do like books where you can take something out of it. So I don't, I'm not a big uh, reader on, uh, 
on novels or I always want to take something useful out of it. Okay. And another good book that I liked was Enlightenment Now. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think it has very different opinions than what the current market perception is. And while I not agree with everything that is said, there is some truth to it. And it is, as I mentioned earlier, there is this, um, I think, huge benefit of questioning group thinking mm -hmm. and just saying, look, if everyone is thinking that way, it might be true, right? But it just argues for for somebody who wants to achieve something a little bit different to take a step back and try to think about it in a different way. And I think the thinking about it in a different way in that book also is on uh, on climate change. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting uh, chapter on that. I have very uh, strong opinions on climate change and uh, green energy, which are not exactly aligned with, with that, but also not uh, diametrically opposed to it. Um, so, I mean, and that was Steven Pinker. Is yeah, that that's Steven yeah. Pinker. Yeah. That's right. And the most recent book that I read, or I'm reading now, is called Chaos. Okay. And it's uh, it's by Gilles Keppel, and I'm reading it actually in German. So I never read books in German. So it's nice to to get to 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 be immersed again in so much uh, German language. Sure. And uh, but it, I, I think it will be translated also in English soon. So it's a uh, French journalist who wrote a book on the Middle East. Okay. And it's basically explaining the mess that is happening in that region. And personally, I'm also married to an Egyptian. So that's, oh, I, I have, I, I go a lot to the Middle East. I'm very engaged and interested in all the things that are happening in that region. And uh, it is a very, very good book, which explains it extremely well of how the situation from the 70s has changed into where we are now. Mm. And I cannot tell you the conclusion because I'm not there yet, but it is so far halfway through, it is an excellent book, well-written and uh, very insightful again. I look forward to the translation. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll move on to podcast. What, what are your yeah. favorite podcasts? So outside of um, this podcast, oh, thank I, you. <laughs> I do like um, Macro Voices. So mm -hmm. Uh, it is um, it is a podcast which has some uh, institutional investors, hedge fund managers, or also uh, strategists which come onto the show and are just within maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, are explaining their views of the world, what is going on, or maybe it's not the world, maybe it's just a specific segment that they're really interested in, whether it's liquidity or um, let's say Europe or, mm -hmm. or or emerging markets, but it is usually very very good, and I do have my favorites of uh, strategists and people that I follow in, uh, sure. in various different ways. So I'm not listening to it every single time something comes out, but I, I do listen to it on a on a regular basis. And another one which I listen on a daily basis is called uh, the morning briefing. But again, for any non-German speaker, that is will be a little bit challenging. So that's the, a German podcast, which is just uh, every morning, just for 20 minutes, sure. laying out what is important, what is relevant, often related to Germany, but also to the global markets and uh, what's happening in capital markets. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I've never been to Germany. I'd love to go. Give me your favorite off the beaten path place in Germany to visit. 
All right. So since I'm from Berlin, this uh, that's definitely on the beaten path. It is. So, uh, but maybe, there will maybe there's a new nook or cranny or something like that in Berlin. I yeah, know. I mean, there's uh, there are many nice spots for sure in Berlin, and I go every year. It's always nice, but maybe some more uh, interesting places off the beaten path are Mainz, which is a nice city close to Frankfurt. So okay. Frankfurt is not a place that you need sure. to visit. It's it's the airport is the best thing about it. <laughs> um, but Mainz is a it's a beautiful city. It's where Gutenberg is from. Okay. Um, and they have great museums, uh, also showcasing uh, everything which came from the printing press. And another nice city is Bonn. It's a beautiful city which is uh, also has a famous uh, person coming from it, which is Beethoven. And that is, I think, it transitioned into a really nice, hip, cool city, which really made that uh, transition well from losing a lot of governmental jobs and then what else, What do you do now? Right. And they really came up with something special. And I think that is worth a trip. Great. And yeah, otherwise well, it's a, it's a, Germany is a, is a great country to visit for sure. But I, in general, if I, can maybe share another Please. example of off the beaten path. Sure. So that's how I travel. Okay. It always has to be somewhat off the be beaten path. And we recently took a car trip through Europe in the summer and just went to Netherlands, Belgium, and then uh, northern uh, France. So that's uh, Normandy and Brittany. And that is a beautiful spot to go and amazing food. Uh, yeah, just in general, a good place. Another good strategy is to look at, as a global investor, I look at currencies, of sure. course. And I look at which currencies are the cheapest and relative to purchasing power or relative to where a fair level is. And then I would rank those countries and I would go home to my wife and suggest, let's look at uh, maybe Brazil, Chile, and Turkey. And maybe Russia. So, and then out of those four countries, which are four countries which look cheap, is there anywhere where you, where you would like to go? You should start a travel blog. It's uh, travel notes from global fixed income managers all about purchasing power parity and where to travel cheaply. Yeah. I'm sure it would be successful. All right. Um, Last question for you. Um, uh, we're in Toronto, great uh, food city. I'm not aware of any uh, particular German uh, places to eat. Where is the best German food in Toronto? Uh, I, I don't know, so I oh, don't have a right. definitive <laughs> answer, but I know a place which has very good German food. Great. And that place is called Barnsteiners, and it is on uh, Young and Balmoral. Okay. And I don't think they say it is German food, but it is German food. So I, I believe the chef is from the from Bavaria. And the two things, so I, I think I've never been there and not eaten the schnitzel. Okay. So that's, uh, that's very, very good. Uh, I do change the salad, though, so it's not the potato salad, but a different. <laughs> but it is the schnitzel itself is excellent. And even better is the apple strudel. So that okay. is very, very good. I think they claim to be European cuisine, so they have a lot of other things as well, but the schnitzel is great and the apple strudel is phenomenal. 
Constantine, thanks for being so generous with your time. Yeah, uh, yeah really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. 